Hello, Dennis. Hello, my beautiful friend, Jesse. Oh, well, thank you. I think yes. you're beautiful as well. Well, thank you. Nobody else um, does, but I'm I think you're you beautiful do. under the Aquinan definition, though. <laughs> the Thomistic definition yes. of beauty? Oh, yes. God. Oh, I messed that up, did I? Oh, yeah, well, that's, I okay. that's right. I knew yeah. what you meant. Aquinan is the adjectival form of Aquinas, but usually people say Thomistic. What do you think Pluto thinks about that? Pluto is very impressed with, <laughs> with the Aquinan view of things. But we're talking about beauty today, and the idea that Thomas gives could really change your understanding of what beauty is beyond just personal preference and help you look at the world and liturgical things and evaluate them in a new way. Absolutely. So, this is part one. I think we might have a part two on this, and maybe even part three, depending if Chris gets And who knows? It could go on and on forever. So without okay. further ado, episode three of season four of The, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Previously on The Liturgy Guys. <laughs> And then I'll just like edit some clips from last week's episode here. Culture is the way that ideas are carried. Oh, wow. That was a really fun conversation. Uh, But we didn't get to talk about beauty a lot last week. And that's that's something that I'd want to get into, especially since we talked about beauty like season one. So if you want to hear about beauty, we did that. But Dennis, you were telling me that when we talked about beauty in season one, we were... uh, not talking about the foundations. Yeah, we just mentioned it be- uh, beautifully, but uh, in a very basic sense, this beauty is the revelation of ontology. But there's way more that you can say about that. So since we I am now the executive director of the Center for Beauty and Culture, which, strangely enough, sounds a bit like you come here to learn how to do hair and makeup, doesn't it? It's like the <laughs> cosmetology school. I didn't think that, but now I do. <laughs> in, in Chicago, there's this chain of... Uh, Salons called Mario Tricocci. Oh, yeah. There's a training one right out here in uh, right. Mundelein. And, and it says like the Tr- Mario Tricocci School of Beauty and Culture or something like that. <laughs> no so way. That's not what we're talking about here. Oh, I got to go find that and take a picture. <laughs> it's not called that, but it's like the School of Beauty. or I don't know. Anyway, but that's what modern culture thinks beauty is, right? This external um, prettiness. And that's not... That's a little part of it in the classical understanding of things. Um, but what I want to talk about today is what they call the realist or the Thomistic tradition of beauty. There's lots of understanding. That's my favorite tradition. Well, there you go. There's lots of ways to think about beauty, and the modern world tends to think about beauty in a subjective way, that I have a subjective response to something, and if it gives me a, a movement of emotion or a feeling that I like, I call it beautiful. And then we say, who are you to tell me that's not beautiful? Because I think it is, right? So oh, the subject is I. This is the old beauties in the eye of the beholder line, right? Well, that is the misinterpretation of what Thomas Aquinas said. Why, yes, I do have beautiful eyes. Thanks, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, take the beauty out of your eyes. I'll I'll stay tuned then to hear what it uh, actually means. Right. So there's lots of ways to approach beauty. The one that I have found most helpful for the Catholic sacramental worldview is what they call the realist or objective view of beauty. And basically that means beauty is an attribute of of the object. It's an attribute of a thing that exists. And so you can say a car can't be blue if the car doesn't exist. 
the car can't be a sports car if there's no car, right? So the sportiness or the blueness of the car is an attribute of its existence. It has to exist in order to have that attribute. So beauty in this sense, in this way of understanding, is actually an attribute of something that has existence. And therefore is, as you could say, maybe with little quotes, air quotes, beauty is in the object. Not contained in the object, like the blueness is not contained in the car like a container, but the blueness is an attribute of the car. The blueness is there because the car exists. And so beautiful thing, beauty in this sense, uh, are real. Beauty is real in that it's a quality of being itself. Would you, um, is, is this similar to saying, like an Aristotle or St. Thomas, it's an accident? It's not part of the substance or essence or ontology, but beauty is an accident? Is, is that what it means when you say attribute? Uh, Beauty is yeah. never an accident when I'm doing something beautiful. Yeah, in the Thomistic sense, accident doesn't mean haphazard, right? It means a, like an external quality of the physical uh, thing. Uh, in a sense, it is because you, the physical thing, just like all sacramental things, rely on the material thing to reveal the inner spiritual, otherwise unknowable spiritual reality, right? So the beauty is not only the externals, but it depends on them to be communicated. So I can have a, a profound thought, but it's unexpressed until I actually use the words. And you can say, okay, well, is beauty in the words I'm saying, or is beauty in the idea that's good? It, it, they're both there. So beauty kind of starts in the idea, but then is expressed through the tangible expression. And I think that's a good way to say it. Can you, uh, maybe this is jumping the gun a little bit, but if you, what you're describing is called the realist school of beauty. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other, I don't know, schools or. uh, Good question. I like that. Yeah, I guess, you know, there's a book by Umberto Eco, ECO. It's called The History of Beauty. And it's actually um, very good, like two pages. It's got colored pictures. It goes through all the different theories of beauty from, you know, the pre Socratics all the way through kind of pop art and whatever. So, for instance, uh, there's something called performance art, which means there's no beauty in a thing until it's done. So somebody, you know, piles up a bunch of things and explodes it. And the explosion is the experience of energy and movement. And then the beauty is found in the movement of that stuff, right? And the explosion and the destruction of the thing, as opposed to the thing itself encapsulating some other idea. Um, you could also have the platonic worldview. That's platonic, just so you know, Pluto, Plato, not Pluto. I make one mistake <laughs> and I never live it down. Did you hear that coffee I talk, Chris? So. When he said so. So there's Aristotle and then there's Pluto, which was really funny. (laughs) At least I didn't say Play-Doh. Play-Doh, that's right. Uh, But you probably know about this, Chris. The platonic worldview coming from Play-Doh is a bit suspicious of materiality and that the beauty is not really in the object itself, but the beauty is associated with the idea of the object, the concept of the object called the form. And that's um, not the object itself because the object is seen as a copy of the perfect idea of the thing. So therefore it's less and diminished where this Aristotelian and Thomistic worldview would say, okay, well, yeah, there's a conceptual idea of beauty that's in the mind of the perceiver, but the way it gets in the mind of the perceiver is because it's been encountered in an object. So there's this more high trustworthy understanding of the power of creation to reveal things, which in my mind is very closely related, related to the Catholic sacramental principle, right? God makes himself knowable through stuff. And if the stuff can't bear those realities, then it's not a very good communicator of those things. So yeah, sure, God is outside of materiality. However, by his wisdom, he's chosen to use materiality to reveal those things to us. And the Eucharist, of course, would be the super example of that, right? It's the top of the sacramental worldview. Matter, nonetheless, becomes the bearer of God's own intangible, uh, knowable presence. And so 
in that sense, beauty is in the object, right? The object itself is the bearer of that fullness of reality. Okay, so whatever theory of beauty exists, the one you take is that the starting point of beauty is with the thing itself. Right, or that beauty is an attribute of, of being, so that it has to be in order to be beautiful. How can you have a beautiful painting if you haven't painted the painting, right? It's just how it is. Is it a mural if it hasn't been painted as a mural? Is it a car if the car hasn't been produced? Is, I mean, Jesse, you know, you might have three more kids. Like, how do you know if that kid is beautiful until that? Oh, I can tell you. <laughs> well, it's got your genes, right? So, of course. Well, mostly my wife's, I think. Right. Right. So this is the what's called the realist approach. This objective doesn't mean like objective standards that everybody has to fit in a little box. It means it's in the object. Object, objectivity, the existence, is where that beauty um, resides. And so that's kind of this Thomistic uh, worldview. But, you know, the perceiver is very important in this too. Just because the beauty is in the object doesn't mean that the person has no relationship to perceiving that so so are you more beautiful if you understand that realist objective beauty better well you could argue that so if you take you know your seven-year-old through the louvre in paris and they're looking at all these masterpieces and they just think it's so boring mom i don't want to look at the you know mona lisa anymore they're not ready to receive that beauty However, when they grow and you have a tour or you get one of those little recorded headphones and it explains the artwork and you go, oh, now I get it. You understand its objective reality better in your subjective perception. And so you have better understanding of the thing, which means your mind is more corresponding to the beauty of the object, which means you are, you are, your mind is more beautiful. It understands more of the thing. Dennis, have you ever heard this? I, I think I remember hearing this in uh, philosophy class. And it, it, it had something to do with, so you look at a, on a field of uh, wildflowers, mm -hmm. yellows and oranges and purples and blues, and it's magnificent. And the thinking is, uh, if I remember this correctly, is that part of how that field got to be that way is not simply in itself, but the fact that it has to appeal to eyes. For example, the eyes of a bee or something right. like that. And so there's kind of this symbiotic development between the beautiful thing in itself, here the flower, and the perceiving eye of the bee. And right. they kind of mutually build, they're, they're related and they build upon each other and they, again, the symbiosis. But this, uh, I wonder if this is similar to what you're saying is that uh, the eye of the perceiver uh, is kind of rooted in and related to kind of in a way that the thing is as well to the to the eye does that mm -hmm. oh is this sense? like uh if a tree falls in the forest but no one's there to hear it does it fall so <laughs> like make a sound so yeah if something is beautiful but nobody sees that beauty is it actually beautiful i it might be i mean if there were no bees to see the flowers would they or no end people up, to see or the no, flowers okay or no people would they and, and so the so the flower never had to attract bees would they just kind of be blah, or would they be kind of competing for, you know, uh, to, to out-beautify the next one? I don't know. This yeah, is really you know, out of my league here. There's a sort of Darwinistic notion that if the, if the flower is more attractive to the bee, then the bee is more likely to pollinate it and is more likely to produce seeds and, you know, so on. However, you know, the, we'll, we'll get through this to this understanding of beauty, but the notion that things are intelligible. Now, remember, if beauty's in the object, 
or it's an attribute of the object. If you can't perceive the object, then you can't perceive its beauty. You can't perceive what it is. And so there has to be proportionality between our means of perception and the thing perceived, or else we won't be able to perceive it, and so its beauty won't be communicated to us. Remember long ago, we talked about beauty in this system. It, we call a thing beautiful when it reveals its ontological reality. So in other words, ontology, we, you know, we talked about is the, the nature of things, the inner reality. Jacques Maritain calls it the ontological secret. That's the deep, deep understanding of what a thing is as it's understood in the mind of God. So God has a perfect understanding of things. Um, and things in the world reveal God's mind to us, not fully, but partially. But the more fully it reveals its own reality, its own nature, the more beautiful we call it because the more it reveals to us the mind of God. And so beauty always has this revelatory power and this intelligibility. And without that, it's not proportional to us. And so like we would never say radioactivity is beautiful, right? We can't see it. Uh, but we can say, boy, that sunset is beautiful because we can actually, it's proper to our senses to perceive it. So, we, so uh, ultraviolet things can never be beautiful to us. Well, it'd be harder for them to communicate their reality to us. So when you sit out in the sun and you get a tan, you know, it takes a while to realize you've just been fried <laughs> by ultra, is it ultraviolet or infrared or whatever those radi radiation that gives us a tan or a sunburn. Um, but by definition, when a thing is perceived and it reveals the mind of God, then we know that we're talking about uh, something beautiful. So in the Platonic system we talked about before, the form, the idea of the form was just the idea of the thing. And nobody knew really where it resided. It was just sort of somewhere. Um, in the Christian worldview, we say, okay, the perfect idea of a thing is in the mind of God. It, it, it dwells there and it's revealed to us through Christ and human reason and nature and revelation and all that stuff. So basically what we're getting is an access path to the mind of God. God understands something beautifully and we perfectly and we don't. But the more perfectly the thing on earth reveals that fullness of the understanding, the more we call it beautiful. So if you've ever struggled, say, with an algebra problem or a physics problem or something. and you Always. Just look at, I always struggle with it. And you're like, oh, gosh, you know, this vector and I don't know what this means. And I didn't pay attention in class and it looks so easy. And you just get frustrated and angry. You don't understand. And then all of a sudden, somebody gives you a little bit of information or you finally figure it out and you go, Wow. I, oh, I get it. The light bulb goes off and you feel this sense of relief in peace and understanding. Think of that in all of creation that we don't understand things as we ought to because of the fall. Our minds are fallen. And a beautiful thing makes it easier for us to understand. And so we have this almost direct access to that which we don't know. And therefore we can say, ah, wow, now I know, now I understand. So, you know, a beautiful act. Think of your kid or your spouse just does something that makes you say, man, I love you. I'm so glad you're my son, daughter, wife. It's because what they've done is so obviously love for you that you don't have to say, hmm, see, after something, you know, does he want a bigger allowance or she's trying to, you know, get permission and blah, 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 right? It's just so obvious that you know it instantaneously and you have that direct experience of being loved and you don't have to do all this work to figure it out. You can talk about that as a beautiful act, direct access to the understanding of something. My children or wife have never done anything like that, so I'll let you know when it happens. Such a homely family. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, is that why you had eight kids, so then more opportunity for people to uh, adore you and praise you? So, yeah, right. No, I'm still, still waiting for the, for, the, for the beautiful one to come. Right, well, so when you talk about beauty, you know, I'm, I'm 
got a lot of this from one of the great philosophers, mystic philosophers, uh, Jacques Maritain. He wrote a book called Art and Scholasticism. And there's an essay in that book called Art and Scholasticism as well. And there's another one by a fellow named G.B. Phelan. I think it's Gerald. It's P-H-E-L-A-N. And there's a book of his called Selected Essays. I, um, I have to give the hat tip to Dr. David Fagerberg, who, who introduced these articles to me. But when you read these, what they say beauty is, is the power of reality to please in being contemplated. The power of reality to please in being contemplated, to be delightful. That brings joy in knowing. So you can have a bowl of flavorless gruel, right? And it's going to give you calories and maybe it's vitamin fortified. But you add some brown sugar and cinnamon and some fruit to that. It's the same nutrition, but suddenly it's delightful. So a deli what's the difference between nutritious food and delicious food? Hopefully it's both. But delicious food Well, adds, you're the super taster, so why well, don't you tell us? So most food is not delicious to me. Uh, but the idea is the same food has something about it which is delightful and joyful to know and to uh, experience. And, you know, at the highest level, what they would say, it exalts and delights the soul by being known. Uh, so the soul is delighted. So think about that. You can say, I wish I knew how to do nuclear physics. Okay, fine. But that's kind of an intellectual discipline, and it's sort of good to know. But you start knowing, hmm, who am I in relation to God? What's the right way to live? What's the way to worship? What's the proper chasuble? What's a proper um, chalice? And you say, wow, I now know through the revelation of the mind of God, through the mediating of this thing, that what beauty is. And the soul says, wow, I know more about who I am in relation to God. And that's a delight of the soul, not just the mind, not just the body. And so this question about beauty being, sometimes they'll say it's um, the, the compelling power of the truth or it's the attractive power of the truth or the splendor of the truth. Um, someone can tell you something true, a boring homily, or someone can be such a gifted homilist, whatever they add, whether it's that story, that turn of phrase, their own natural excitement, and you're like, wow, speak, speak more, you know, give me another 15 minutes, Father. I want to hear more of what you have to tell me. Or like an engaging liturgy podcast or something. Exactly. This is why we have your puns there for a little bit of delight uh, every now and again. So the, um, the question of beauty is that extra thing, whatever it is, that makes the truth delightful and attractive and compelling and gives it this kind of splendor. So what makes a mannequin a mannequin and a beautiful statue a beautiful statue, right? One of them is kind of dull and lifeless and stiff mannequin. And the other then, you put in stores to show off clothes. No, the mannequin oh. is the, the <laughs> stiff the <Yeah>. one. <laughs> But then you have a beautiful artwork and you see the spark of life on their face or they have most perfected proportions or it engages with allegory and myth and num numerical proportion, bodily movement that's like ballet. Okay, there's the truth of that story, like an illustration in a kid's you know, science textbook or history textbook. And then you see it taken to the level of art. There's something compelling, beautiful, delightful about that. Um, and so that's one of the major distinctions. Uh, yes. Chris. Before we come to the end of this, just I want oh, you the to put, end. We just barely I started. I know, I know. I want you to put a real fine point on this. Why is a liturgy guy uh, the executive director for a center of beauty and culture? In other words, I mean, what's the? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, why? What, in what in is other words, what are your credentials? <laughs> what does all this beauty talk have to do with the liturgy and vice versa? Well, if anything is going to reveal the inner reality of what it is in the mind of God car, a tree, flower, brick. What would be the most important thing to know? 
is how is God worshipped and how does God want to be worshipped? So what's the worship in heaven like? So you say, well, how do we get access to that? And how do we know it? You can, you can sit still in a chair and say, oh, if, if I move, God will kill me because I'm a sinner and everything I do is wrong. That's not really a delightful way to understand your relationship to God. In some sense, it's true, right? As sinners, God owes us nothing and we don't deserve his love by our own merits. However, you can say, what is the truth about God? What is the truth about how he wants to be worshipped? And so one of the things that G.B. Fallon uh, said was that when things are beautiful, the senses come to know the luminous inner or the inner luminous structure of reality. <whistles> reality as God understands it, right? So what is the what is heaven like? Well, we don't really know. But if we render it present on earth through material stuff, most perfectly, as perfectly as we can, we're actually seeing the reality of heaven and experiencing it with our own senses. And the more it conforms to that reality, the more beautiful we can call it. And then it's transformative on us. So you sing a Kyrie that is so close to the way that, you know, uh, God wants it to be. Or the, the, the Sanctus, right? The Holy, Holy, Holy. That's the cry of the angels and saints in heaven that St. John tells us in the book of Revelation. Well, what does that sound like? Who knows? But if you were carried off to mystical visions, like that kid who, uh, the heaven is for real kid, he supposedly saw heaven. Everybody's like, what's it like? Who is there? Fascinated. We want to know about our own reality. If a musician was carried off to a vision of heaven and heard the song of the angels and then came back to earth and tried to plunk that out on the keyboard and make a choral composition that sounded like that, you would say, wow, I've captured the inner luminous structure of the sound of heaven and I'm going to render that present on earth. And then we would say, that's beautiful. It's revealing the inner reality of those things. And then we'd find, hopefully, delight in that. And then we'd want to do it. And then we'd want to sing it. And the more we sing it, the more we're conformed to the things of heaven. And the more we belong in heaven at the end of our lives. Dennis, that is it, a fine point that you made. It, Thank it, you. It reminds me <laughs> that, uh, you know, so the, the, the council describes the liturgy as being refulgent and bright mm -hmm. and luminous. Like and signs say. and symbols of heavenly realities. Right. And uh, so it kind of reminds you of the transfiguration, but also remember in the Old Testament where Moses goes up and he talks to God face to face as mm -hmm. one man would speak to another. Mm -hmm. And when he comes back down, his face is all is similarly luminous and mm -hmm. it's uh, iridescent. And so he's freaking everybody out by his bright faces. So he has to when he talks to them, he has to wear this veil over his mm -hmm. face so they mm -hmm. don't get scared. Uh, I guess that's what we're saying here with the liturgy is hopefully when you go to the liturgy, it's radiantly beautiful because it's a reflection of uh, uh, the truths of God's mind that, as you say, transforms us and makes us radiantly beautiful too. Well, that's the idea. It's the encounter with the thing that changes us. So, you know, one way to sort of close this out, I guess, is where is beauty perceived? In what of our human senses would you say beauty uh, resides? The sight? Is in the emotion... I mean, the, the eyes pick up the sense experience. The eyes have it. Well, what would you say in, in, in philosophical terms? You know, Your Chris, soul. Philosopher, it's in the intellect. Beauty is an object of, of the intellect. How come? Because you might say, well, my senses are looking at this beautiful thing, and I have a feeling in my gut that this is lovely. But how come it's the mind that is where beauty is uh, known? Because it's the receiver, uh, ultimately, of the truth. Yes. The beauty yes. is conveying the truth. Yes. Remember, beauty is that thing added to the truth 
or that about the truth which is compelling and lovely and um, radiant, the splendor of the truth. So you're going to say, okay, well, how does the mind know? Your, your tongue will taste delicious food, but your mind knows that it's delicious, right? Your tongue gives you the sense information, but your mind has to say, oh, that's delicious. And so you can tell if it's delicious or not. It's the mind that knows. So that's, this is a real... Um, division between the modern understanding of things and this, what they call the classical realist understanding of things, that the mind knows beauty because it has to be able to be open to intellectual discourse. Because something could be pleasant and it could be untrue. You could say, wow, that angel came down and told me not to worship the true God, but to worship a tree or worship the devil. But boy, that angel was beautiful and the words were so poetic and sweet and this ball of light was around this angel and everything was so pleasing to the senses. I guess I'll do it. But you, your mind has to kick in and say, okay, well, I'm getting all this sense information, but is it true or is it something false that's being surrounded by things that delight the senses? So beautiful things do involve the senses, absolutely, the eye. And in the sense, the eye can uh, share in that, the eye can delight in it, but the eye is the vehicle for the mind. And so this is where you have to say, all right, in our world, we all like to say, I like it, and if you don't like it, you're stupid, or you know, shake your fist at somebody and say, you're an idiot because you don't see it the way I do. But then you have to back up and say, all right, the mind has to step in here. Is this actually true? And therefore, does it re relate to the good? And so this is how beauty and truth relate to each other. The beautiful thing has to reveal the truth. And once you know the truth, you act on it, and then you um, live the life of the good. So it's not just an action of the eye from the senses alone, but it's the sense information that the mind has to sift through and then say, okay, yes. This is true and delightful at the same time, and then you start talking. Then you're talking about beauty. That's like a one-two punch. Absolutely. Um, all right. Nice. Chris, did you have anything that you wanted to add to that? Jesse, <laughs> I just like put you on the spot. That's all. <laughs> hey, no, nope. Chris. Nope. Chris, you yes. could answer a liturgy question. Maybe. And you know what? <laughs> if you answer the question, Chris, with not just truth, but delightful, oh. then you will answer it beautifully. So you have this, not that only Chris answers questions, but we'll push you on the spot, Chris. If you answer it accurately, ho-hum. If you answer it accurately and with a kind of delight, then you're answering it beautifully. Yeah. No pressure. No pressure at all. It is right and just. Mm-hmm. All right. To the Liturgical Institute. Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? This question this week comes from Nico. Nico says, hi, guys. Hi, I Nico. I am a fan of the newly renovated Christ Cathedral and traditional churches like... Uh, Thomas Aquinas' chapel, my alma mater. Dum, what, are, dum, dum. what are your guys' thoughts on Christ Cathedral in Orange Diocese? I think it's fairly a fairly decent modern church, question mark? First of all, the word is orange, not orange, okay? Oh, you got yeah. that? <laughs> talk like a New Yorker or don't talk at all. 
Orange, Florida, and Forest. Okay, got it. So, uh, you want me to take this one, Chris? Normally, I'm so used to deferring to you. This seems like a really good Chris question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Christ Cathedral, you know, is newly dedicated in the Diocese of Orange, California, and it was formerly known as the Crystal Cathedral. And it was perfect for Saturday Night Live because it was neither crystal nor a cathedral. However, it was a big, (laughs) very modern glass uh, and steel, not quite a box because it had some... Uh, various shapes. It was designed by an architect named Philip Johnson, who was one of the great modernist architects of the mid-20th century, and you know, people hold it up as one of his masterpieces. Now, what's interesting about the cathedral, before it was the Catholic cathedral, it was the home of this great popular televangelist, and then their you know, community kind of dwindled, and they couldn't support this big building anymore. And um, he was a reasonable guy, you know, smart, good preacher and everything. He wasn't sort of a crazy shucks. Shuckster, Huckster, um, and he he shucked a lot of corn. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and the idea of it, in many ways, was that it was a building that wasn't a building. So, a lot of modernist architecture comes out of the idea that um, glass and steel are the materials of our age. They're the industrial materials, and you don't need to pile stones on top of stones anymore to have big buildings. And so you could see out of it, you know, the California weather, of course, is pretty good, and everywhere inside you could see out to the sky, and it had this kind of overwhelming sense of the unity of inside and outside and creation and nature and that kind of thing. On the other hand, that kind of theology of a building that's almost not a building because the walls are not made of stones or gems, there's no color or imagery in it, is a certain anti-material skeptical view of creation because it comes back to that distinction between many um, post-reformation Christian denominations and the long-standing belief of many of the Catholic and Orthodox traditions that at the fall nature fell is wounded but is still good right good but fallen there were some of the more iconoclastic uh, reformation reformers who said at the fall nature was bad it's corrupted and so you have to be suspicious of matter, which is why they didn't like things like sacred images and statues. And they loved music because music was intangible. It was the word of God without all that fussy matter uh, getting in the way. So if you say, okay, I I believe that, then I'm going to build a building that's as immaterial as possible, clear glass and just a minimum amount of steel to hold it together. It's kind of a perfect Protestant um, view. I mean, it's their theology in built form. Um, But it's not really the Catholic theology in built form. So the question is, how do you turn that into a Catholic church? And in fact, in the early days of their planning the renovation, some of the people there actually called and asked if I would be the liturgical consultant for it. And I said, no. I mean, I thought about it, but then I said, no. I just thought there was no way that you could properly turn it into a Catholic church. And I still believe that. So I'm not trying to beat up the bishop or the architects or the people who paid the millions of dollars to do this. I just think it's, it's, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear and... They did some things that try to make it Catholic. In my mind, it looks like the perfect renovated cathedral of the 1990s. You know, there's like 1990s theology in and through it. Uh, it's almost like the last couple of decades uh, didn't happen. So seating in the round, uh, very few images, this sort of altar block made of uh, unadorned stone with four big candlesticks out in four corners. And then um, the crucifix is a bit... Um, what do you call it, primitive looking with these big chunks of, of crystal on it. Like, if you look at the books from the 1990s, it is like the perfect 1990s uh, version of things. There isn't a big tapestry of Christ in glory, but it's off to the right, which is very interesting because if you look behind the altar, 
you see this balcony with the choir, like the actual choir people behind the altar. And then off to the right is Christ in glory. So it's like, oh yeah. So we look at the choir and oh, oh Jesus in glory is here too. Sort of at this Yeah, it's a l- little out of place. It's this little odd art piece in the side. Um, so I would not hail it as a great sacramentally rich, properly layered uh, thing that is the future. I mean, honestly... Sorry, Bishop fan, <laughs> I like you, and I know you a bit, and everybody meant well. In my assessment of it, it's a big meeting hall where Catholic things happen, as opposed to a deeply sacramental image of the new heaven, the new earth, the cosmic and eschatological and doxological realities. Um, and when you read the books about it, there's lots of complicated theological expression about why they did it. A lot of things were handmade, a lot of things were expensive, there was careful attention to it. But I think at the end of the day, the building was really un unlivable, unfixable. And so they really tried to make something kind of congregationally Catholic, that congregational emphasis of the 19th century. Um, but it just, it doesn't, in my mind, it just doesn't work as it should. So that's my uh, critique of it. You know, if you're going to say... story and you're sticking to it? If you're going to say good things about it, right? They saved this building from destruction. They restored it. They did their best to block the views out to the... The, of the, to the sky a lot with these things they called sails or these little quatrefoils of fabric. And the altar is made of this prime, you know, fine marble and a lot of the things were custom made. Um, but I don't think it, it doesn't rise to my level of the priorities that I would give a building like that. So one man's opinion, hopefully well-informed and not arbitrary and mean, but that's my thought. All right. Chris? <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, I'll just stay out of this one. <laughs> All right. I mean, not, not because I disagree. I mean, you'll, I don't you'll know, stay I don't, out of the cathedral. No, no, no. I don't know what I could add to that uh, uh, answer to to help anybody's understanding. So. There are some kind of really radical, almost crazy uh, responses to that cathedral out there. You read some people compare the altar to the altars in a Freemason temple and everything. And some of them, like, he shows one on the right and one on the left, and they look exactly the same. I'm not into conspiracy theories, uh, but if you're going to design something that looks exactly like the te- the altar from one of the most popular and well-known Freemason uh, buildings in America, you should know people are going to put those things together. And I don't I don't have any reason to think they did it on purpose, but I, I don't get into that kind of crazy speculation. Um, but if the altar doesn't look conventionally like an altar, then people will start to do things like that, and that's one of the ways that it failed. They didn't hire a church specialists to help design these things, and so it uh, it's open to multiple interpretations in the bad sense instead of in the good sense. All right. If you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you, and God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.